Most people don't fully understand what it takes sometimes to prepare to be a song leader. Uh, 15 years to be an athlete, Olympic athlete, Bill, but to be a song leader, sometimes you have to work through those songs during the week and then have a lock-in on top of a Sunday morning service. The the youth group, um, along with Lord and Elijah and Gracie, had a lock-in opportunity over the weekend, and um, those are always eventful. You typically don't get enough sleep, and you may just lose your voice if you're not careful. And so you've done a great job. Um, Lord, you've done a great job responding post-lock-in, post-lock-in. Um, I've done a few of those in my life. I sent a message to Lord um, sometime after we dropped our kids off and said, look like a good crowd. If you need me to come back, I will. He said no, and I said, all right. <laughs> uh, I would have gladly come back, but, um, but I'm appreciating as a parent um, the sacrifices our youth uh, minister and that team make for our children every day. Um, this year, we've been talking about responding. Um, we've celebrated that this morning with, um, with celebrating um, the job that Gracie and Elijah have done with us. They've responded to a challenge um, new to them. Well, I remember when we talked in your interview, we said, would, um, would working as a team be something you'd be comfortable with? And it was something that maybe you've never been presented with before. But we've, we've had sort of um, intern roles in different ways, and we were able to sort of describe that in a way that made sense to you guys. And I, appreciated, I appreciate how you've responded. You've rewritten expectations for what um, internships at Northside mean. You have. Your maturity, your attention to detail, the way that you read into the crowd and you kind of see things. Um, these are all things that I've, I wrote on that nice paper that you're sending to your professors um, for your evaluation. But, uh, but, but honestly, I really appreciate um, that, um, that wisdom that you have, the maturity that you have. Um, responding in life takes a lot of, of maturity. It does. We learn from successes and failures in different ways. And then last week we talked about the failure to embrace success. We talked about that, that being created in the image of God makes us a success story even when we fail. We're reminded in, in Scripture that we, we do fail. Um, we're reminded that um, we have reason to celebrate. Um, Isaiah 53 and verse 5 tells us that... Um, he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Um, we have a reason to respond in our lives because of a faith in something greater than ourselves that gives us guidance and directions and hope of something greater than we can ever imagine. Um, over the weekend, I had the, um, the blessing to attend a, um, a visitation for a funeral service for a family friend. Um, I'd say a blessing because it's always a good reminder to see people of faith lean on their faith during difficult times. That perseverance that I'm witnessing will produce joy in them, and in a mature mindset, that joy will carry them toward eternity. And for a, um, a now widowed husband um, to look at me and said, I expected 15 more years of retirement with my wife, but I'm looking forward to eternity in heaven. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. That's a blessing because I don't always see the good in some of those negative circumstances. And so the fine line between success and failure this morning as we talk about the failure to embrace struggle is that struggle is something that we don't look forward to having. In fact, our scripture reading is one of those that you read from James and you think, oh, let me read this again. This can't be right. Consider it joy to face struggles. We need to be people of that type of perspective. 
that we, when presented difficult moments in our lives, will consider it joy to gain perseverance, and in perseverance, gain maturity, and maturity find balance and joy in something greater than ourselves, or even what our world can present as success. Because even the greatest athletes in their gold medals, and if you're counting 39 to 38, U.S. over China and the rest of the world, just so you know, just keeping score. I was a little nervous. We had a lot more medals, but not more gold medals. And I'm like, how do you determine a winner? I think I was having a discussion with David the other day, and I said, how do you determine a winner? And I thought, you know, for me, it's maybe it's a, it's a little bit of in between, and you kind of find uh, the percentage of gold medals toward total medals. And when you win both, you don't have to think about it. You just say, you know, you and I, there's a lot of people that are really excited about what that means for us as a country that are missing this part of what success and failure is really about. There are a lot of kids who are watching sports on, on their televisions and watching um, these athletes and aspiring to be something greater that are missing some really deceiving things that are going on in those moments. We're being challenged. We talked about this in our youth class this morning. Uh, by some of those athletes, we're being challenged about what the fabric of our, um, our married relationships should look like. We're being challenged of what it means to be a man or a woman. We had the first um, male weightlifter lift as a woman in the Olympics this year. If you weren't paying attention to that, pay attention. That may be something you see more often. That changes things. That changes the fabric of what it means to be an athlete in sport and things like that. Now, what does that mean to my faith? Nothing if I totally separate the world from, um, from what God wants me to do in my life. But do we do that? The fine line between success and failure is how, how we deal with the challenges and things we see in our culture and how those things are making us reconsider what truth is. I'm a parent. I have two boys um, Laura Beth and I work really hard to be good parents. I found this quote, and as a parent, um, I, 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 it resonates with me. Now, you may be, maybe not be able to see this. Maybe you will. I'll try to read it. Um, so how to be a mom in 2017. Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are met while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, and neglect them in screen-free, processed food-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing, but fostering of independence, gentle, but overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard, and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years properly apart or apart for proper development. Also, don't forget the coconut oil. Now, maybe all those things don't ring through your head when you think about being a parent or when you hold a child for the first time, but it doesn't take long to be completely overwhelmed at what it takes to raise a child in this culture. And then, then later it says, how to be a mom literally in every other generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. <laughs> I like that one a lot better. And it says, this is why we're crazy. And I think in our faith, we do the same thing. We attempt to be omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient in our lives, and it removes God out of his rightful place. Attempting to be omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient in your life removes God out of his rightful place. It is not your job to be everywhere all the time, to be the most powerful person in every situation, and to have all the answers. It is not. It is God's job. And for us to place ourselves in that position puts ourselves on the throne and removes God from his rightful place. So the, the, the failure to embrace struggle is a responsibility that we have. We have to look at struggle as an opportunity to find freedom. 
because it is through his wounds that we are healed, not by our own struggle, by God's son, Jesus, his humility, his sacrifice, his obedience to be subject to the struggle. And he was. Jesus struggled. He struggled with life as a man. He struggled with life separate from God. He struggled with our sins and the weight of that on him, on his shoulders. He struggled with those who were faithful following him that broke that faithful relationship. G.K. Chesterton says, of all the horrible religions, the most horrible is the worship of the God within. I've been, I've been um, really, last week, I've really had some, um, some nights where I didn't sleep well after talking about the struggle to embrace success because um, there, there's, this, there's this idea among some so-called preachers, and I would say false teachers, that, that, um, that we are equal to God because we're created in God's image. That is not what embracing success is about. I am not telling you this morning, nor was I last week, that we are successful because because we're created in God's image, we are some type of little God. That is not true. That is not true. We are human beings who are blessed with the Heavenly Father that sees us in a way that we oftentimes can't see ourselves, that sees us as powerful and forgiven and all those things. But we are no, by no means worthy to be worshipped. I am by no means worthy to be worshipped, neither are our elders or our deacons or the most successful business person or the most successful parent that we have here or even, the, even, the, um, even, our, even from our youth group, those who are the brightest and the best. And to convince other people that our church or our faith has something to do with us more than it does with our God is a very dangerous place to put people in. So if we're going to talk about our religious views and values this morning, please know success is found in God and God alone. God and God alone. The world needs more people who fail at being God, a God, little God, to rely on the grace of God. The world needs more people to fail at being God themselves and to rely on the grace of God. It is okay to, to show that we struggle. It is okay to embrace failure, and it is okay to talk about that. It is okay at the end of, of a journey and a time that you've spent working hard to say, I did not succeed because it's not my job for success. It is God's job to produce success. I have, I have played a role in the process of overall success in the kingdom, but it is not my job to see this through fully. That is God's job, and that job is already fully done in Jesus Christ. So take the weight off your shoulders, church, when you start to embrace struggle to think that you have to be God because you are not. You are not powerful enough. You are not in the right places enough times, and you don't know enough yet. But we need to persevere toward maturity, as James tells us, to become more like Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to focus on Christ. Matthew chapter 7 and 8, we're going to talk about some of the things that Jesus says and then follow him through chapter 8, just see what he did, and then try to gain a perspective of how he managed struggle. We struggle as parents, we struggle as, as, um, as, as husbands and wives, as children, we struggle with trying to do the right things. We struggle with aging parents, we struggle in our community of how to present faithfulness to, um, to the different situations that we come into contact with. We struggle in enjoying the successes of our nation while we're a little bit embarrassed by the values that we, um, that we see in front of us, right? 
And, and at times I struggle with looking like this Christian lunatic that all he wants to talk about is how good God is. But isn't that what, what makes everything else good? So how do we find the balance? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has his house built on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We've heard this story, we've sung the song, we've built the house, and we've went splat. We've done all those things as a child from a young age. We know the story well. And this morning, I want to challenge you with what structure your life is built upon. What structure is building and shaping the architect of, architecture of your soul? What structure? We've heard the words of God. We see the words of Jesus Christ. We've listened to and followed the teachings of his apostles. So what structure is building our house, which will stand when the rains come, because it will rain? From both the wise man and the foolish man, we learn one thing. The rains are coming. It will rain. The floods will rise upon the foundation of your life, and you will have to respond. It's the, it's the one common denominator in both. It's not whether someone's faithful or unfaithful. It's that the rains are going to come. And God has given us an opportunity through both for our soul to be shaped. For our soul to be shaped. We can sing hallelujah because all glory is due him. We can talk about how great our God is this morning. We can sing about it. And sometimes maybe, maybe even in our prayers and in our, in our Bible studies, it's, it's constantly present in our lives. Even in our, um, even in our um, invitation, we talk about the, the steps to becoming a Christian. Faithful living is that last one and oftentimes the most hardest, the, the most difficult the hardest, remaining faithful, not speaking English, as some of you may think at this moment, but remaining faithful. It's difficult. It is difficult. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He talks and completes that by talking about removing the the plank from your eye before you can see clearly into the lives of others, right? And we know in Romans chapter 3, echoed from this type of teaching, that we've all fallen sin, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus is encouraging us today, even through these writings, that acknowledging our failures, we will see how incredibly perfect the love of our Father is. Our God is a forgiving, loving God. And Jesus Christ points out that just pointing out the sin and the the shortcomings and the struggle in the lives of others does not make them any holier. It does not make you any holier. It just points out the common denominator that we all have. That we've all been tempted, and at some point we've all fallen short, and we've all sinned. And it's rained, and the floods have risen up in our lives, and we've responded in certain ways. And some of us maybe just haven't gotten caught yet. Or some of us have gotten caught and responded in in, in culturally or socially responsible enough ways for our lives to not be challenged significantly. We haven't been incarcerated, or we haven't been exiled from our community, and we've been able to go about our lives because we haven't done anything terrible. 
but we still will look at the lives of others and see terrible people. And I believe Jesus wants to show love, wants to show love through our shortcomings. By acknowledging our failures, we will see how incredibly perfect the love of the Father is. You can't see how perfect the love of the Father is if you're blinded by sin in your life. And if you think you're perfect and you're blinded by the sin of others, you're not seeing how impeccable, how beautiful, how perfect the love of the Father is. Think about your own relationships. When do you see people love you the most? When they should? When you love them first? It's nice to, to give someone flowers and then respond in a loving way. Of course it is. When you give a gift at Christmas and you're excited about the, um, the response that somebody's going to give you back. And maybe you don't even receive a gift in return, but you made them happy. And I will challenge you to say, that's great, but when you are unlovable and someone loves you anyways, that's deep love. You know how I know Lord Beth loves me? Not because I give her the, the right gifts, because most of the times I don't. She loves me even when I'm unbearable sometimes. She shows me the love of Jesus through humility. She shows me the love of Jesus through sacrifice and obedience. And then I'm able to clearly understand something. It's not about what I do or what, what the power that I have or the places that I'm in or the things that I know. It's about God that makes me loved. Our world needs that struggle. Our world is asking for truth, asking for acceptance. Our world is looking for all kinds of things. They want joy. They want love. And all the things we talk about this morning, even in our scripture reading that we've mentioned, they don't always come in the most perfect of circumstances. Jesus tells people, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who, who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you will ask, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law of the prophets. With people seeking our world, they're knocking at the door of success. They're knocking at the, of the door for love. They're knocking at the door for acceptance. What is our world giving them in return? Are they giving them godly things? No, they're giving them stones and snakes and things that look like they're going to fill their desires and their needs, but they're not. If you, if you look at Jesus and the woman at the well, and she's, she's seeking acceptance and love through multiple relationships, and Jesus says, you're missing it. You want to have that thirst quenched? Find it in my heavenly father. So, forgiveness is a food that a hungry world is desperately looking to consume. We, 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 we have a world that's desiring forgiveness because we've all fallen, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We have a world that's looking for fill-in-the-blank. Joy is a food that the hungry world is desperately looking to consume. Peace is a food that the hungry world is desperately looking to ex consume. Acceptance is a, is a food that the hungry world is looking to desperately consume. You fill-in-the-blanks. People have needs. They have desires. We all have a hierarchy of things in our lives that are more important than others. And I think in God, in God, we can consume those things and consume those things eternally. 
And that may be a difficult struggle for some of us. Because what does it mean? That means we'll have to go back and make relationships right that we've wronged. It means we'll have to stay true to our first love. It means we'll have to love God more than money. It means that we're going to have to accept people who look different than us and be patient as we walk through their struggles. It means that some of our lock-ins are going to be a little crazier than what we expect because we've invited the community in, and that's what we say we want, is it not? It is. You guys laugh because you know it's real. You had a great weekend. I appreciate you so much. We had, we had real work going on here in this building over the weekend. And it's because people are desperately looking to consume something. And, and in our initial response, our initial reactions to what we see in people, you say, well, the way that they talk, sometimes their language doesn't seem like godly language. And they're like, okay, that's a speck. Remove that plank from your eye because there's other things going on here, right? The way that they dress, the way that they respond, the way that they are respectful of, um, of the of the building or even, or even sitting quietly in a class. Those are high expectations for some because that's part of our struggle in remaining faithful. It's just attending and being at church sometimes. How can we expect the unchurched to suddenly know those things? Would it take 15 years to grow spiritual maturity? Possibly. Some of you in the lives of your kids and raising children, you know that it takes more than just a few. People are looking. People are hungry in our world. They're looking for something. And I believe we have the bread of life that can sustain. Jesus came down from the mountainside in chapter 8. We're going to follow Jesus a little bit in the next chapter. Because you can talk about the things that Jesus says we should do, but how does Jesus do things? So let's, let's get in, in chapter 8. I've got some verses um, outlined here, but I'm, I'm going to read through a little bit more as we go. So in, in chapter 8, Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Okay? Man with leprosy. And that's an infectious disease, one that we wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Um, let's say someone with COVID came and said, I want to be healed. And you're saying, well, hold on. Um, if I had my vaccine, am I wearing my mask? You can kind of go through some of these circumstances. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus didn't ask this man to go through the process of being saved in this example. He didn't ask this man to stand at a six-foot distance and figure out some way to come in contact without being in contact. He touched a man with leprosy, knowing that that's how you get leprosy, is being in contact with someone who's sick. And immediately this person was healed. You follow follow into um, verses 5 through 8, Jesus entered into Capernaum, and, and a centurion came to him. He said, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come heal him? Shall I come heal him? He didn't, there's no, there's no description of all the things that he had to do and make, to make this happen. He didn't have to schedule an appointment. He didn't have to beg. He didn't have to offer some kind of large gift to Jesus to say, hey, I really need this. Should I come heal him? He showed faith. Man with leprosy showed faith. Jesus came to Peter's house. He saw the mother-in-law laying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, there were demon-possessed people who were brought to him. 
And he drove out those spirits with the word and healed the sick, all the sick. And in chapter 8 and verse 26, in chapter 8 and verse 26, <clears throat> starting in verse 23, he said, Then he got into a boat, and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, and Jesus, kept, Jesus was sleeping. And the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. After these, um, in verse 28, these two demon-possessed men are restored. It says that um, when they arrived at the, the other side of the lake in the region, um, two demon-possessed men came, um, coming from the tombs met him. And they were, they were violent, that no one could pass, um, pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to, to torture us before the appointed time? And some distance from, the, from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. Jesus' mercy and grace shown here baffle me at times because I expect, and maybe this is just me as a human in my um, immature thinking of what, what God's plan really is, that rules, education, and discipline are, are more important than other things. And I'm not saying that they're not important, but rules, education, and discipline are all important, but none are necessarily Christian ideas. Rules, just because they, 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 they guide you toward, toward an end that's important, doesn't mean that it's from Christ. Doesn't mean that it's from God. Not every rule that you follow in your life is something that's kingdom-based. Not everything that you're taught and everything that you learn in your schools or even from your parents are from God. We see a lot of false teaching going on in the lives of families of good people. And even discipline, the way that you learn things, maybe through difficult circumstances. They're not always based on Christian ideas. But our one simple truth this morning is grace and mercy are the heartbeat of Christianity. So rules and discipline and all these other things that we sort of put upon people first without grace and mercy and love... That's what makes them non-Christian ideas. This is a tough message to hear because we base our goodness on following rules. We base how, well, how good we feel about our Christian lives and how we are remaining faithful. We base that at times on things that aren't necessarily important. And I don't want to discourage you this morning, but I want you to know that grace and mercy matter. And matter more than just what we see as a rule that others should be following. Because we're all rule breakers. Rules don't sanctify us. Rules don't make us holy. Rules help disciple us. Rules help give us an understanding and sort of protect us. But rules alone don't do us any good in becoming like Christ. Self-sacrifice and humility and obedience even when the rules don't apply, even when the expectations are not godly. Jesus Christ showed all those things in his life and showed grace and mercy as the heartbeat of Christianity.
it's tough going through a week and seeing loss and seeing struggle and then presenting a sermon this morning that says we should be happy about that. It's hard when, when as a congregation, we've seen things, whether they've been... Um, they've been presented from an outside perspective. Maybe it's from our community or maybe it's from our world that's challenged us or maybe it's from within where we've challenged ourselves. Maybe in unnecessary ways where we've divided and we've, we've, we've come up with rules and, and things that just we can't agree upon. And we miss opportunities for grace and mercy and love to show how Jesus works in our lives. It's tough then to hear these kind of sermons. But the reason why, the reason why we're talking about the fine line between success and failure is because embracing struggle will make the difference. Embracing struggle and dealing with the sin that we have in our lives and how we respond to the sin we see in others will make the difference, not only in our own salvation, but the opportunity of the salvation of others. Because if we turn away people because they look different, act different, say different things, and we don't give them an opportunity to grow and mature and persevere to become medal winners, Bill, to be successful stories in the end, then we failed them. Our small group God, um, question two, asks, what was Eve seeking when she ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapter 3? What was she seeking? She was wanting to be like God. She was wanting to, to be all knowledgeable. She was wanting to be something that she shouldn't. And from that moment on, from that sinful moment on, we have struggled with the same challenge. Not relying upon God, but trying to do God's work. And oftentimes, we call the good that we're doing God's work when it's really detrimental. It's detrimental to our own faith and our own growth because we avoid struggle. We avoid difficulties. We make certain rules and expectations the norm in our churches, and that leaves the outcasts outside and keeps faithful people in, and it's a lot easier to be church when we're all faithful than it is to adapt to a, to a society that is failing what God wants. We need to offer the invitation not just to church people who sit here amongst us, but to our community as well. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And following the plan of salvation gives people an opportunity to remain faithful. And that's where the struggle is. The struggle oftentimes isn't making the commitment and walking down the aisle or even being baptized. It's responding through faith to life's circumstances after that. If you look at Jesus' ministry, he is responding to faithful people who have misguided understandings and are dealing with struggles in their faith because... They've imposed them upon themselves because they've taken their own understanding further than what God says is true because they've stopped loving and they started following rules. Rules are important. Rules are important, but not more than the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So as we offer the invitation this morning and you're struggling with being the most successful person in your family, at your job, you're trying to be that um, top of the podium person, the theme, right? We all want to be the gold medalists. Realize that that opportunity is for all. Through Jesus Christ, through his humility and sacrifice and obedience, we have an opportunity to find victory. And in victory, we find struggle. But through struggle, there is eternal joy. 
It will not be easy, church. I'm not here to tell you that Christian life is an easy life, but it is a worthy endeavor. And it is full of joy because our God is good all the time. So as we have an opportunity this morning to respond and to choose to become like Christ, to choose to become a Christian and choose to walk in a way that's different from what the world tells us, we also have an opportunity this morning to come to grips with some of the things we struggle with privately, in your own lives, maybe on your knees at home this afternoon, and ask God for a clear vision of what his expectations are through your lives, through your work, through your children, through what you endeavor in, and how grace and mercy can be a part of that message. Because the rules apply, the rules are important, the standards are, are, are important, Choosing to live sin-free and in removing ourselves from certain things are absolutely good. Without love and grace and mercy, they're not Christ.